Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Welcome to the Red Med Podcast, Rescue, Expedition and Disaster Medicine, where we provide a platform for healthcare professionals working in or aspiring to join rescue, expedition and disaster response teams, a platform to share information, advice and opportunities and connect like-minded Red Med individuals in our community. Good afternoon and welcome to episode 29 of the Red Med Podcast, Rescue, Expedition and Disaster Medicine. As usual, this podcast is sponsored by SOS Coffee, coffee which we sell to support free medical missions, CPR and bleeding control courses around the country. So following on from podcasts 11 and 13, where we talked about tactical medicine, frontline medicine in ISIS territory and oil and gas medicine, we thought we'd dive into the, the labyrinth that is medical care or first aid for close protection and hostile environment close protection. Uh, this really ties in well with the RedMed course, the RedMed manual, and a paper I was reading last week in the Journal of Wilderness and Environmental Medicine, published by Craig Llewellyn, in which he discusses the symbiotic relationship between wilderness medicine, tactical medicine, and operational medicine. And we've seen through these podcasts and through the, the creation of the course and the manual that there really is an overlap, an incredible overlap and a lot of skills and competencies that are required between the spheres. Uh, and yet quite often we don't look outside of our own bubble for the training and the relevant exposure to the environment. There was another paper published in the same journal, Wilderness Environmental Medicine, in 2009 by Dean Berman. And he asked the question, in wilderness first aid, is there an industry standard? And that's the question we want to ask today. In close protection, is there an industry standard? And I think the, the answer we're going to talk about in a moment, the answer in the UK is definitely yes. However, is there an industry standard in the hostile environment close protection sphere? But today, I thought I, I'd introduce our special guest. Today, I'm joined by Damien Rawcliffe. How are you doing, Damo? Are you all right? Can you hear me? Yep, I'm good. Thanks, Chris. Thanks for having me. You're very welcome, mate. Damien is a, a great friend of mine. He's uh, ex-UK infantry, ex-Royal Military Police, close protection. He's been a security manager. He's a UK healthcare professional on frontline ambulances. And he's also the CEO of Apollos Medical in the UK, offering a, a range of medical courses, and we'll dive into those later. Damien and I worked on close protection teams for the US military, the US embassy, the Japanese embassy, 
uh, and various other locations throughout the Middle East on hostile environment, close protection operations. So we talk the same language and we keep receiving the same questions on social media from colleagues, people in the industry wanting to migrate from CP to CP medicine or to improve their skill set. I wrote an article for the very first edition of the Circuit magazine years ago about first aid for the close protection industry and the gradual the gradual progression pathway. And we continue to get the same questions. So we thought we'd address some of those questions today, some of our experiences, some of the courses, the qualifications, clinical governance, are they fit for purpose? How do we do continuing education? Where does it fit in? How does it map across? Is it accepted? Uh, but before we do, Damo, um, I'd love you to introduce yourself to the listeners and add a little bit of context about your background, please. Yeah, sure. Um, <clears throat> firstly, this podcast, I think, is has come from 10 years worth of conversations that we've had multiple times. And as you said, these conversations are being had by people um, exactly the same all over the world at the moment. And I'm getting these questions asked me on almost a daily basis through LinkedIn, etc., of the topics that we're going to talk about today. Um, so my, my background, I started off in the Royal Green Jackets um, and I then transferred to military police specifically because I wanted to do the close protection. Uh, I did an operational tour in Algeria and two years in Northern Ireland where I was allocated a three brigade commander in South Omar. I then left the military um, and went on to the, the civvy circuit, as it's known, and went out to Iraq in November 2003. I did two years um, on that project in Iraq. Well, I started off actually with CRG on the um, coalition uh, government authority, provisional authority, then moved on to the State Department contract with yourself, Chris. Um, and then over the years, bounced around some um, delightful places around the world, uh, one of which was in Guatemala with you, um, I also did a couple of years home-based, which was nice because my wife wanted a baby, which was also nice, um, and then went back out to Iraq. Um, and then I spent five years, um, or six years, actually, yeah, six years in Iraq the second time. Came back to the UK 2016, um, joined the ambulance service, and I've been working frontline um, ever since. And I set up Apollos Medical last year. So that's me in summary. Fantastic. So a lot of overlap. We, we've done a lot together. And I think you've got a lot of value <laughs> to, to this discussions. We, we've both worked in Iraq together. We've both worked in Algeria at different times for the embassy. We've done close protection in the UK, the Middle East, Latin America, in pinstripe suits, in shorts and flip-flops, and full body armor helmets and knee pads. So we, we've experienced the full range of close protection in different environments, the risks and the appropriate qualifications. So uh, yeah, let's get into it. But I thought I'd break the ice a little bit with a quick fire round, if you don't mind. <laughs> go for it. Get it going. Um, I tried to think what you're going to ask me, but go for it. <laughs> well, I know you're a gear freak. We're, we're all gear freaks. We're like uh, adult kids, really, in sweet shops. I know you've got plenty of gear. What is your favorite piece of EDC gear or everyday gear? piece of gear what do you carry in your pockets or your day sack all the time what do you not leave home without um 
at the moment it's a respirator but it's that's <laughs> that's not normally the case it might be uh, in the future <laughs> yeah i think generally speaking um my go-to piece of kit would be something simple like a pen torch um i carry that every day on the ambulance because one it provides me with a source of light which obviously um we use a lot going into people's houses uh, or night duties, whatever. But you can also use it to gain entry through windows, and you can also use it defensively as a kubitan if that if situation arises. Um, and working frontline, it's you're not adverse to um, receiving hostility, or would that be verbal or or physical? So, I think generally speaking, that would be if I had to choose one piece of kit, I think that would be it, which might be a surprise to you. No, no, it's not actually. Sounds good. Sounds good. Okay. We drive around in ambulances. We have huge rucksacks in the back of our armoured vehicles on CP ops, etc. But if you could only take three items of medical equipment on a remote cross protection operation, what would you take? Tourniquet, definitely. Yeah. Um, you can make a tourniquet, but if you've, you know, as you know, you've got roughly 60 seconds before you lose consciousness. So um, good luck finding something to create and use on yourself in that amount of time. Um, Israeli dressing type, that type of dressing, uh, I would think. And I'd go for something smaller, um, like a, a normal small first aid kit for the small mishaps um, and there's a reason why I say that it happened to me on a team in Iraq where the the principal I think he cut it on a door handle or something he cut his hand and when we came to treat it we were geared up for a mass casualty incident but nobody had a small dressing or a set of plasters and embarrassingly and i've never forgotten this embarrassment he was walking around for the rest of the day with a massive bandage on his hand and it looked ridiculous for the size of um laceration on his hand so i think it would be something to deal with and not forget about the small things because hopefully if you do your job well it's the small things that you're going to deal mostly with not the not the big things yeah, I couldn't agree more. I've got a few examples that will feed in later on, but I think when you consider as close protection operatives first, which we are, and the medical role is generally second, 99% of our job is to plan, prevent and avoid, and maybe 1% is reaction, whether that be a verbal conflict, first aid, a contact, a road traffic accident, but 99% of the job is planning risk management and trying not to get into these situations. And it is the little things that become an annoyance. Just a a paper cut in your finger, you start to bleed all over your suit and it doesn't look very good in front of the clients or the press. So, So looking about roles and environments, close protection officers may provide protection for celebrities all over the world business executives, diplomats, NGOs, engineers, communications engineers, oil and gas engineers. It's such a broad field. And I think we're going to try and cover a lot of it today in both um, UK, European permissive environments, Afghanistan, Iraq, etc. 
But um, what are some of the risks that we're likely to come across in close protection? We've mentioned Iraq and Afghanistan, Libya, Africa, etc. We would expect potentially roadside bombs, explosively formed projectiles, road traffic accidents, shootings, etc. And most of the time, when we have these discussions, we talk about having the trauma bag. We never used to talk about the trauma bag in UK close protection. You might have a bag of plasters in your pocket or some oxygen or an AED. But more and more, we're looking at the, the changing sphere, the changing um, nature of security. We've seen bombings in Boston, Madrid, London, Manchester. The Western world is susceptible to the same potential threats and kinematics of trauma as the Middle East or what we used to say was a hostile environment. So I think we, we need to consider those and up our game and be prepared. And that's starting to come into the into the forward courses for zero responders, first responders, the acceptance of tourniquets and hemostatic goals. Uh, but a lot of the time, unless you're a healthcare professional, many of these courses don't put a lot of attention on the medical aspects, pre-existing conditions. Maybe we talk about asthma and blisters, myocardial infarction, hypoglycemia, but how many medical kits actually carry the equipment and the medications to cater for those kind of things? So I don't know what your thoughts are, Dame, or what kind of risks would you consider when planning a medical operation for CP? Well, the first thing to, to point out on, on that note is I'm literally – 20 minutes ago, just had a conversation with my colleague um, talking about developing a module on diabetes. Um, and the question that he said was, on CP Ops, you would know the medical background of the people that you're looking after, which is an interesting point because not necessarily. Ideally, yes, we would. But we've experienced it um, on a test where we've asked for this information and they were extremely reluctant to give us the background medical history um, of the of the clients. And <laughs> what they they sort of the SOP was: if we had one of the clients go down, then we would phone one of the managers or the doctor on site and say, "My my client is now a patient. What do I need to know about this person?" Which is that presents you with all sorts of uh, limitations for telephone service, uh, the time factor, etc. So if you can, the gold standard would be to, as we do with everything, match it to your risk assessment. What are What is the potential? Is it a hot environment? So you're looking at heat injuries. Um, is it a cold environment? What's the, the past medical history of the people that you're looking after and deal with that specifically? So if you've got someone with diabetes or they've got hypertension or whatever, whatever the case may be, then you tailor your knowledge, your kit and your ability to react to that accordingly. Does that answer the question, Chris? Yeah, 100%. Excellent. And many times on these podcasts, we talk about rescue, expedition, disaster, wilderness, tactical, the overlap any of these operations need to be planned based on a thorough risk assessment, considering the three components, the risks relating to the people in the group, the activity you're undertaking and the environment. So it could be, as you say, heat and cold, could be roadside bombs. Uh, and one of the mitigating measures that we implement is the pre-screening questionnaire. 
people are generally very reluctant to fill that in honestly either because they for fear of rejection that they're not going to be allowed to go on an expedition or they're going to lose their job or or maybe cultural factors they're embarrassed or that they're not accustomed to sharing that kind of information so quite often we're blind and we need to plan for everything um yeah really good point which so, makes I mean, it difficult trying to do the, the blanket planning makes it even more difficult if you if you can't target your planning and you have to plan for everything then it turns into an absolute behemoth well it's management of expectations as well you can plan to take care of an eight person close protection team who are young fit and healthy hit the gym every day they're being honest you know they've got no pre-existing conditions but then you've got two clients, whether it be 60-year-old engineers, obese engineers with a history of cardiac problems. They're a potential time bomb if you're not prepared to manage it and, and mitigate it in advance. But then the management of expectations. If you were involved in a road traffic accident, are you expected to deal with the local population? Are you expected as a, an oil and gas close protection medic to... Um, to look after the local population. In Kurdistan, for example, we did a, a community outreach project and we were expected to take care of the indigenous population and hundreds of refugees coming over the border from Syria. We had no idea of the, the endemic diseases, the, the cultural issues, their past medical history, nor did we have the medications or the in the right quantities to deal with that patient population. So right from the outset, you need to establish the baseline with your client and the team. What are the limitations? What are the parameters? There'll always be the Murphy's Law, and you'll have to step out of that now and again. But if you can plan to prepare for it, then even better. You've got the moral dilemma around that situation as well. If you use all your kit because you're capable of doing so on the local populace in that immediate area, and then you've got no kit left to deal with your team and your client, um, that's a rough situation to be in. So are you really harsh in your SOPs that we're here to deal with ourselves and that's it and have yeah. that harsh cutoff so that you have you retain that capability or is it a little bit more of the general um, I will help anyone that needs, needs their help and that's a really harsh decision to have to make? And a lot of that will depend on the safety of the scene. Are you able to, to get out of your vehicle and, and attend to the patient or while your client is exposed on the main route? And there could be a secondary attack. There could be an opportunist attack. 100%, uh, yeah. Client unnecessarily. And what's your logistical supply chain? What's your resupply system like? If you use all of your morphine on a local patient and you can't get a resupply in country, then somebody in the team gets injured and there's no analgesia available. Plus, it opens up the whole a whole bucket of issues in terms of conflict management, cultural competency, um, and the repercussions of helping or not, depending on the the religious and the cultural considerations in the area. But, you know, looking one step ahead, as a CPO who's been involved in the medical side for years, I mean, in Algeria, as far as I can remember back, I was allocated as a team medic, as a junior close protection officer, and I had a huge inventory of drugs and I was checking them every week and sending in my weekly reports back to the UK. And I had no idea what I was checking. I didn't know, <laughs> I, I didn't know what lidocaine 2% was. I didn't know what it did. I didn't know how to use it. But it was on the inventory, so I had to check it. 
Um, then in Athens, Greece, looking after a diplomat, we went to an island for a couple of weeks and I was uh, then asked to be the, the island vet and I was injecting the dog in the scruff of the neck every week in the absence of anyone else who was semi-competent. Um, then you've got the other extreme in Iraq. We were expected to look after military commanders and diplomats of the highest level, 40 very experienced close protection officers, and I was the only medic in the team. We didn't have any any medical support, no medical emergency response plan, limited communications. This is going back to 2003, 2005. Things have changed, and we'll talk about the changes and how things have evolved. Um, but at another embassy, I was expected to inject a client with a, a rabies injection after he was bitten by a feral cat. Things as as far afield as putting tape on blisters while we're trekking around Athens and, and looking at the Roman ruins and the Greek ruins, etc. Scorpion stings on a, an oil and gas site in Kurdistan. Guy came to me one day, Doc, I've got an itchy foot. Yeah, that stinks. That's uh, athlete's foot. Go and wash your feet, put some powder on, come back next week. And he came back the next day, knocked on the door, Doc, Doc, itchy foot. And I opened the door and he's convulsing on the floor. He'd been stung by a scorpion. And within 30 seconds, he was having tonic-clonic seizures. He had an autonomic storm. And it just you just don't know what you're going to get in close protection. Working on a, an oil and gas rig, we're dealing with dermatitis, contact dermatitis, chest pain, hypertension. And then a week later, I literally had what I was stood up in and what was in my belt and we're in the trenches opposite ISIS as they, they advanced towards the oil and gas installation. Uh, working for another oil and gas company, we had a, a guy lost his hand. He had an, an amputation through an explosively formed projectile, horizontally launched EFP. And you just your skill set's got to be so broad and you've got to maintain all this knowledge and competencies in the equipment in a limited resource environment when you've got 100 other things to think about. So it, it's broad, but let, let's refine it to start off and go back to a baseline which i think is a good baseline to start from and that is first aid in close protection in the united kingdom what is the level that's been adopted by the uk security industry authority i don't know if you can help us with that given that you train people in these courses well prior to 2012 it was first aid at work um and then the courses were put onto the um, regulated um, skills framework. At that point, things changed to a level three. So we moved then, like the FPOS at the time, which for years was the gold standard within CP, That's on, that was only a level two. Do you mind if I just quickly interrupt you there, just for our yeah. international listeners, listeners? We've got people listening from uh, Germany, Australia, Canada, the US. The First aid at work was the UK Health and Safety Executive baseline first aid certification for first aiders in the workplace, whether that be an office or a factory or whatever. Um, and it was a, a very short basic syllabus on how to do basic life support, activate the emergency um, system, put on plasters, manage fractures, burns, etc. Is that right? Correct, yeah. It, it's, it's designed for the workplace. Yeah. Um, so... What happened in 2012? The qualifications, the, the FPOS became the, in, the industry standard, but on the back of that, people were creating 
their own versions of what they were calling the team medic. And there was lots and lots of courses available. They weren't regulated. Um, so you could put in the, whatever you wanted and teach it to whatever level you wanted to however effective you were as, a, as an instructor or, or not in, in some cases. So in 2012, um, they qualifications were added to the regulated qualifications framework. And what you see now on qualifications, at the end of the qualification, it will say a level three in pre-hospital care, RQF. So that's the regulated qualifications network. And that's now standardized courses at various levels. So what we, what happened then, um, the level three first aid at work is still accepted by the SIA for licensing purposes. The caveat to that is whether the industry accepts that. So you're, you can get your license, but when you apply for a job and your CV's there with your FAW, and there's 20 other CVs there with a level three pre-hospital care level three, such as the FREC uh, or the first responder, then which CV is going to be going to be looked at more favorably? You're going to go straight to the bottom of the pile. So although the SIA still accepts um, FAW, the industry as such will accept level three. So just to wind it back very quickly, yeah. For those international listeners, and, and this does apply to international listeners because there is a, a UK training site in the US and a lot of international companies in the Middle East are now using the UK standard as a baseline for recruitment. So in order to receive a United Kingdom close protection license through the UK Security Industry Authority, you need to have attended a level three close protection course and be certified and you also need to attend a level three first aid or first responder course. And together with a criminal background check, the close protection certificate and the medical certificate, you can then apply for your license and receive a license. Is that correct? That's 100% correct, yeah. Superb. So the the first aid at work then and the, the FPOS, which is first person on scene, they, they're still accepted. What, what kind of... Which other courses are accepted and what are contained within the syllabi? The, the FPOS has changed um, as well. There's, an, there's the FPOS um, that's run by, let me think who that one's run by. There's first person on scene course level three, and that's through the Association of First Aiders. Um, and then there's the first uh FPOS level four, which is a Pearson qualification. Most of the courses that are available at the moment, and that the, the FPOS level four is a behemoth um, of a course, originally designed to be run over 10 days and then condensed into five. So although it's a great course, it's extremely heavy going. So the predominant courses now are the FREC three and the first responder um, qualification qualifications network UK um, both of which are level three now when you're choosing a course it can be of all the courses I've got strong marketing behind them so it can be very complicated looking at what's the best option for me so is it a way of guiding people to, to kind of figure in that question out the Royal College of Surgeons came up with 
the FEM, which is Pre-Hospital Emergency Medicine Skills Framework, and they designed a list of descriptors of skills for each level. So, for example, level A and B are your first aid at work, and then we go into pre-hospital care. So your level C is a first responder, a level D is your first responder who performs that role as a secondary role. So you're looking at police officers, fire service, close protection personnel, UK search and rescue. So that's the level D. And that's predominantly where the Quellsafe FREC 3 and the Qualifications Network first responder level 3, they sit at the descriptor level D, which means they're pretty much the same thing it's just a different awarding body and the difference would be in the assessments how many assessments you get and how many written papers you get does that make sense so far yeah yeah absolutely great so in the uk at the moment to get your license um, and industry acceptance which is also vastly important you're looking at um a level three pre-hospital care at a descriptor level d and there's a whole list of skill sets so you can and that's available online you can download the, the skill set framework and you can compare the course objectives and you can you can see where they sit and how similar these qualifications are so, so in when you talk about similarities uh, what do these syllabi contain as a FAW, FPOS level three, level four, what kind of things uh, for those entering into the close protection industry? They're obviously not healthcare professional qualifications, but what kind of things might be included in these courses? These are non-healthcare professional um, levels that we're talking about at the moment. Um, and it basically, it does, it works through what any course would work through. So you're looking at scene management, catastrophic hemorrhage, um, spinal care, airway breathing, circulation, disability exposure, casualty handling, handling um, musculoskeletal injuries, um, and looking at it at that level of what they can do in terms of uh, scope of practice and the kit that they can carry. Uh, and that's the predominant difference. There's no invasive procedures. Um, there's limited... People put it into the courses... Things like Pearl, for example, isn't included in the level three. Um, however, training providers, including myself, we teach Pearl because it's an important aspect um, of assessing a head injury, etc. Uh, and it's not invasive either. So that's that's kind of where the levels sit. Does that make sense? So, yeah, yeah, 100%. So Pearl, for those that don't use the same acronyms, although most of us do, Pupils at equal round reactor light, which is a good indicator if somebody's got a head injury or taking drugs, etc. Um, so, in the early days, back in 2005, when we worked in the Middle East, when things were going bang every two minutes, we were initially first aid at work trained. This is before the inception of first responder courses. We both later went on to qualify as EMTs and afterwards paramedics, etc. Um, do you think these? FAW, FPOS courses are suitable for the hostile environment role. And I'll ask you about the permissive role in a moment, but do you think they're appropriate for if somebody certifies in the UK, gets a UK SIA license, which is required by 
UK or international companies as a recruitment benchmark. Do you think that is an appropriate level for close protection in an austere environment? I think it's a good baseline. Um, and that's that's where I think you should view it as. So it gives you your baseline knowledge and skills. Yeah. And bearing in mind, one of the issues that teams have now is the level of kit that their organization is willing to purchase and the amount of kit that they're willing to purchase and spend their money on. And for that, for that kit to be held in the vehicles, IFAX, for example, um, the, the lads used to carry, everybody carried an IFAC. It was, you had to do it. It's just naturally accepted that you would carry an IFAC and it would be, um, you wouldn't be very popular if you didn't carry one. Individual um, first kit with tourniquets, chest seals, etc. Correct, yeah. And then you've got grab bags in the vehicles and then you've got the vehicle bags with the team kit in. Now, I've spoken to a team recently in Algeria where because of the level of threat that they're facing at the moment and the fact that they're not in chess rigs, etc. Now, in our day, when we were there, Algeria was like not quite as bad as Iraq, but it was pretty gnarly um, and would be classed as a hostile environment. Now, things have toned down a little bit, but the potential is still massively still there. But they're unable to carry IFACs because when you're in the suit, you're not going to have a massive pouch sticking out of your belt, etc. Well, um, we experienced something similar to that on the oil fields in Iraq. In, in the early days, we had uh, plate carriers, paraclete, body armour with magazine pouches for, for rifle mags, for pistol mags. In some cases, some projects we even carried grenades, radio spare batteries. We certainly had medical kit. And then in, in the later years, because everything was toned down and there was more of an emphasis on the voluntary principles of human rights and security, et cetera, and investigations, we weren't allowed to wear plate carriers. You could wear discreet body armor under a shirt, but you couldn't wear plate carriers, and therefore you couldn't carry any overt medical pouches. Um, it had to be discreet on your belt uh, or in the footwell of the vehicle or in the boot. And as we know, when things go bang and adrenaline kicks in and we move from a, a place of high risk to a place of lower risk, if it's not attached to your body, it's not going with you. So the that's risk. And, and that's one of the frustrating things about CP. How many times in your career have you heard the, the term, oh, the client doesn't want that? So yeah. what you want to do and what you want to carry and what you know you should carry, you can't because the profile of the person that you're looking after doesn't want to have that insight or project that image, which is part of the part of the industry really, isn't it? We're there to provide a service and our primary role is discreet or high profile security and medicine exactly, really yeah. takes a, a back seat. So to, to go back to your question about is the FPOS sort of level as it was or the first responder as it now is, is that level um, suitable for a hostile environment? So the short answer is, in my view, it's a good baseline. And then yeah. from that baseline, you should go out there and not seek higher level skills as people often do and not do a course that offers these higher levels that are invasive that you can never use because, one, you haven't got the kit, and two, you're not allowed to because it's not the Wild West anymore and there is governance. Um, so look at courses that enhance your competence at the level that you are at. 
And if you're proficient at the level you are at with the kit that you, you have in the vehicles, and that's all in date, you know where it is, you know how to use it, then I think it is suitable. Um, well, that's, um, that, that's interesting. We'll come on to kit in a moment. Um, but first aid qualifications, first responder qualifications, generally, we're not talking about healthcare professionals here. Uh, no, we'll absolutely go not. We'll continue education later. But for first aid or first responder qualifications, they're generally valid for two to three years. And my concern is always it, most people are fairly current and competent to put on a tourniquet. But are people current, competent, and confident at taking vital signs and analyzing them and understanding what to do with them two years after completing the course if they haven't had any patient contact or or clinical practice? And for me, that's potentially where some of these qualifications fall down. It's a secondary role, as you indicate. And quite often, we pay lip service to the maintenance of the skills Lots of companies will insist on pre-deployment training or regular in-country training. That really depends on the pace of operations and the proactivity of the management or the individual medics. But uh, it's certainly susceptible to skill fade, I would have thought. Yeah, the qualifications last for three years. So within that three-year period, if you have done no consolidation, no continuation training, uh, and no skills development, um, you're not going to be able to achieve well no that's the wrong thing to say there is going to be skill fade uh, as you pointed out so you may encounter problems and you're gonna you're certainly going to have that startled rabbit effect when your yeah. brain's trying to search yeah. back three years if you're coming to the end of your qualification period without a doubt you're going to have that startled rabbit and the adrenaline hit is going to be all the more um, as a consequence yeah I, I think in summary on that We've taught FPOS, we've taught first responder courses, both the UK and the American courses, which are generally three to five days. Uh, We've taught Wilderness First Responder, which is an 80-hour course. I generally think that they are appropriate for close protection. I think if you can manage the scene, you can manage catastrophic hemorrhage, airway, breathing, circulation, disability, exposed, examine, prevention of hypothermia, identification of head injuries, hypoglycemia, asthma, myocardial infarction, defibrillation. I think that covers most of the trauma and medical emergencies that people might encounter anywhere, whether that be in the street, in a hostile environment, the desert on a mountain. And I think generally if people follow the syllabus and teach it well, and we consider that the learning styles of the individual students and there's lots of practice and lots of hands-on to consolidate skills then I I genuinely think they're fit for purpose. Now, some training providers elaborate and put things into context, which definitely helps. Uh, It's good to have a generic core syllabus. doesn't matter whether you're going to work in a supermarket or on a helicopter or in an armored vehicle. If the core syllabus is well delivered, then that's appropriate. Some providers will put it in context, and some providers have got themed rooms with Um, increased temperature and sand on the floor or you know it's adding extra value and and really for the kinesthetic learners I think that's fantastic but we have seen over the years because of the level of competition the amount of companies out there that some providers unscrupulous providers are are adding in invasive interventions for non-healthcare professionals so the courses look gucci or sexy and try and sell more courses teaching first responders 
to cannulate and decompress a tension pneumothorax. Um, for me, there's a time and a place and a level, and it's all about currency, competence, clinical governance. For me, that's, that's just dangerous. Um, but I, I understand the practice still goes on. Some companies are offering these additional things outside the syllabus to try and um, show that they're over and above the competition. Yeah, it's getting better. Um, those types of interventions are becoming few and far between now, thank, thankfully. But there was the, the period of the Wild West where there was all these team medics courses that came out of, of the back of FPOS, which were essentially an FPOS with a load of stuff thrown in. Um, yeah. that, that just got to a, a dangerous level. But then at that time, there was very little governance out on the ground anyway. So the argument was, this is outside of your uh, scope of practice. However, that patient's going to die if you don't do this. So yeah. if you mess it up, it doesn't really matter because they're going to be dead anyway. Uh, and there was no clinical governance, so no one's going to be knocking on your door afterwards. Nowadays, totally different. You will be getting a knock on the door if you mess that up because it is outside of your scope of practice um, yeah. and yeah. you shouldn't be doing it. Well, well, we'll touch on clean, clinical governance in a moment because I think that's very important and it's becoming more and more prevalent albeit in remote austere environments we're still under the public view and there's still corporate oversight for a lot of security companies and, and the medics within them so we'll talk about clinical governance but in essence i think we both agree that a well-delivered first responder f pause course first person on scene course or similar um, for the other training providers out there that provide similar courses the um, first responder course yeah yeah, I, I think they are appropriate for – what does FREC stand for, for the listeners? Um, FREC is – oh, you've got me now, Chris. <laughs> First Response Emergency Care. That's the one. That's the there one. you so go. Different levels varying from first aid, first responder up through healthcare professional. But certainly the level three first responder and first aid courses, I think we both agree if they're well-delivered – and there's an element of practical, then they are suitable for close protection and licensing, which then serves as a good benchmark for UK, which is what it's designed for. But it's also been adopted in the absence of any other benchmark or industry standard. It's been adopted by international companies as a recruitment benchmark in the hostile environments. So a lot of companies, whether they're UK registered or not, operating in Iraq, Afghanistan, Africa are asking for the SIA license because they know you've completed certain close protection competencies and first aid competencies. So then that loops me back to the, the summary of the question, is it fit for purpose? UK, yes, um, but I've highlighted in my notes here, it depends. It depends. Can I, on, yeah, yeah, jump in. Please. Sorry, can I just add something to that? Because we're talking about... I've mentioned it a couple of times and I've used the term baseline. And what I mean by that is ex exactly what it is. It gives you your starting point. But yeah. beyond that, it's vital to get further training. So two days worth of trauma, for example, and there's a, a few different courses which we'll talk about later, I'm sure, yeah. um, of what's available. And with the FREC, for example, you can, you can progress to FREC 4 as well. Um, albeit that is very much um, pre-hospital UK ambulance service sort of um, directed, so to speak. Yeah, 
Okay, excellent. We'll, we'll put that into the, uh, the continuing education section a little bit later. Yeah, perfect. But, um, to summarise that bit, fit for purpose, I think yes is the answer for level three calls for SIA certification if it's well delivered. But it depends. Are you are you going to trek through the, the Greek mountains with a client? Are you going to Africa? Are you going to uh, accompany a film crew through the jungle of Guatemala? Are you going to be on a, a vessel out in the in the Gulf? It depends where you are. So you've got a good baseline of how to manage emergencies and recognize emergency situations. But a, a lot of it is going to depend on your risk assessment, who, who you're managing, who you're expected to take care of, what is the nature of the activity and the risk, the security risk, what's the nature of the environment. Um, so yeah, UK, yes, hostile environment, I would say, Going back to the paper by Dean Berman, there's no industry standard for hostile environment, close protection. And there are a number of gaps for hostile environment medics in the sense that we're in a limited resource environment. We're a long way from definitive care. We can't guarantee that we can get to a hospital because of secondary attacks and road closures by the authorities. We can't guarantee there's an air ambulance. We can't guarantee we're going to be able to communicate our findings to the hospital or pre-alert them. So, so quite often we're expected to pull rabbits out of hats and, and do primary care. Quite often there's difficulty with the supply chain of getting medicines delivered into country or sourcing them in country. Perhaps they're counterfeit. We can't trust them. There's issues with safety. There's issues with communications. Um, and I, I know there was a period where there was a boom in the industry and we realized moving on from 2005 where we were the only medics on a 40 person team all of a sudden every team wanted a medic and the the supply outstripped the demand or rather the demand outstripped the supply and so there was a huge effort to recruit medics for the cp environment in hostile environments and we found that a lot of urban medics a lot of people that have spent decades on ambulances in big urban cities were moving across to the Middle East. And they were great at emergency care. They had fantastic clinical skills, but they had no awareness of landmines. They had no understanding of um, extremes of temperature or venomous bites and stings or blast injuries, um, cultural issues. More and more these days, there's cultural competency is at the forefront of any urban service but back then there were gaps in our practice um, and I think that still exists whether you be a medic on a close protection team looking after military commanders diplomats businessmen engineers seismic surveys etc there are gaps whether it be the hostile environment training or the specific to environment training uh, and really, this is where the, the overlap and the symbiotic relationship comes in and the management of expectations, the scope of practice. So there is no standard. I think the industry has been influenced in a big part by the oil and gas industry. Following on from the disasters in the North Sea and the health and safety regulations implemented by the UK Health and Safety Executive, the oil and gas industry and the provisions that are required for that environment based on the risks and the oil and gas offshore medic qualification, which I think is an excellent call we'll talk about later, that has influenced 
the onshore oil and gas industry, and certainly the projects I've worked on in southern Iraq and Kurdistan, we've provided security operators, close protection operators that have been either double-hatted as medics or they've been specifically clinic and ambulance medics for the oil site. But the offshore industry has in turn influenced the onshore oil and gas industry, which has influenced the close protection industry. And it out of that has been born the terms tier one medic and tier two medic. Now that's not universal. It's not international. It's accepted and understood by a lot of British and American companies in the oil and gas industry. But generally a tier one medic would be a basic life support provider, generally with a level three first responder qual and maybe a Myra, but we'll look at that later. And then a tier two medic would be a healthcare professional, whether it be a nurse, a paramedic, an offshore medic, a military medic. And as a baseline, like the SIA has done, they've established a baseline. In the absence of anything else, they've established a baseline, which for a tier two medic is healthcare professional certificate in date with a portfolio of current experience plus pre-hospital trauma life support or international trauma life support and ALS or ACLS, advanced cardiac life support, which I personally think is fantastic because it gives you a baseline qualification. We know that the healthcare provider through their registration is current and competent, and then we're giving them specific trauma and cardiac training to cover most emergencies. So it's a good, as you said, it's a good baseline. It's a good springboard. But then there are gaps in primary care. There's no requirement for medics to have any primary care training. So unless you're an offshore medic or a military medic or or you're a specific community paramedic in the UK or the US, Australia, you may have no primary care training. But then you've got engineers coming to you with contact dermatitis, with gastrointestinal upsets. Uh, and there's definitely a gap there. And then the other issue is, it's all well and good highlighting ACLS, Advanced Cardiac Life Support, as the baseline for recruitment. But having worked for multiple oil and gas companies and security companies, none of them supply cardiac monitors. So why why do we need an ACLS qualification when you're working by yourself and only able to do BLS? There's no cardiac monitors. There's no drugs available because they can't ship them in the country. Yes, some projects have them. Some oil and gas companies will have a clinic with a well-established supply chain and will provide all of the equipment, as you'd expect in a clinic or an ambulance. So on the one side, it's almost people are creating qualifications and standards for the sake of creating them. But on the other side, it's good that we're creating a baseline and a springboard and a common standard. So I guess every time I talk on this podcast, it comes back to the word depends. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but it's true yeah so are these qualifications fit for purpose um, are they suitable for hostile environments it, what is a hostile environment are we talking about a tactical environment with explosive threats armed attacks is it hostile due to the heat cold dust or the industrial risks of falls from heights burns chemical spills is it hostile due to the nature of the limited resources and the prolonged time to definitive care or the lack of communications. Um, it really depends on on where you are in your risk assessment. But um, yeah, so the tier one medic is becoming more and more 
accepted as the baseline for all close protection officers in the Middle East. And the tier one medic would be a level three first responder qualification with a Myra call medicine in remote areas. Now, this is potentially controversial. I think XMed designed this course years ago, and I think the original intent was for it to be bolted on to a healthcare professional qualification so that urban medics had an understanding of how to adapt medical care in remote environments, which I think is genius. I think it's absolutely fit for purpose. I think it's brilliant, you know, adapting an urban paramedics practice to the remote hostile environment. I think it's great. And the three, four, five day course certified by the Royal College of Surgeons. And I know lots of companies are offering the same course now. It's great for what it was intended for. But now there are companies asking tier one basic life support providers to do the course, which is great to tailor that first response to hostile environments. But some companies are adding in drugs without a clinical governance system, or they're adding in cannulation without adequate patient contact and and practice to become competent. So a lot of it is really down to currency, competence and context, isn't it? Can I just add something for the readers, readers, for the listeners' benefit? Um, XMed is now called Icarus, um, and they continue to offer the Myra. And I believe now it has been toned down slightly because it's pitched at the descriptor level D um, first responder now. Um, So I think, I haven't done the course, but looking at the course descriptors, um, I think a lot of the invasive procedures have been um, toned down, taken out now. Yeah. No, and Icarus is a great company and the Myra course is is absolutely fit for purpose if it's delivered in context and uh, to the the right scope of practice. And you can have a broad syllabus which includes an overview of invasive interventions, providing that people understand the context. So a first responder might sit through the theory and might practice the invasive interventions so that they're aware of them and they can carry the equipment to give to a healthcare professional when they're required, or they can communicate to the hospital or to a healthcare professional and say, hey, I've got a patient that requires this, that, and the other, or they can become an assistant to a healthcare professional. So there's definitely value in adding it in as long as people understand their scope of practice and the parameters and the limitations. But um, Myra, I think, is, is a very good course for the tier two medic as well. Um, but the tier one, that's the standard that we've seen in the Middle East. Level three, first response or first responder, FREC, FPOS, some require Myra. But you could also add in wilderness first responder and trauma first responder, which just gives you a, a little bit more of an environmental <clears throat> awareness, a little bit more of a think outside the box, a little bit more of how to improvise, use limited resources. Uh, we'll come on to that a little bit later. The tier two medic, which is becoming the common term, is generally healthcare professional. I've seen ODPs, military medics, nurses, paramedics, oil and gas medics, offshore medics. That has the plates with PhDs, with ACLS, and they're incredible. I've worked with some incredible medics, and I've learned something from every single one. One of them will come in with mountain experience, other with desert experience, other with language skills, others with primary care experience. And you just absorb something from everybody. 
nobody can be an expert in everything, but I, I do think there are some gaps and it depends on your scope. It depends on the expectations on a, an oil rig. I was expected to do primary care. Whereas working for an embassy, I was expected just to provide emergency medical and trauma care. So it's, it's horses for courses. And I think it's down to the individual clinical governance system of the companies or the individual medic to fill their <clears throat> portfolios and the gaps that they need for the roles. So continuing education for me, continuing education is it's a tool to add clinical currency and competency and clinical education hours, continual professional development hours, continuing medical education hours, depending on which part of the world you are. And these credits allow healthcare professionals to maintain their registration or their, their licenses, but they also add specific to environment knowledge and skills so that you're more adapted to specific environments. But they can also be interested or they can also create a pathway towards a, a certain clinical um, route, if you like. So in America, I say America, the National Association of Intelligence is in over 60 countries now. They offer a range of 16-hour CME or CPD courses, which you can bolt on as a basic or an advanced life care, life support provider. And pre-hospital trauma life support, which is 16 hours. There's the pre-hospital trauma life support basic course, which is the TFR, trauma life support, trauma first responder. There's the advanced medical life support, 16 hours, which is a fantastic course. Looks at everything from cardiac problems to infectious disease to mm. asthma to environmental problems. There's the, the new NAMT All Hazards Disaster Response Course. Includes everything from infectious disease, structural fires, the incident command system, uh, radiological emergencies, GEMS, geriatric education for emergency medical services. The NAMT have also produced leadership courses. So they're all fantastic and courses for courses. If you can bolt them onto your curriculum step by step, I think they'll serve you well in most environments. Uh, but there's two that we keep getting asked about, Damo, is the, the tech and the TCCC, the, the military courses. So tech is tactical emergency casualty care, generally for civilian medics. It's in a 16-hour course for civilian medics to support or integrate into a law enforcement tactical team, which for me is a, a fantastic course for CPOs. We've then got... TCCC, Tactical Combat Casualty Care, which is also accredited by the NAMT and the Committee on Tactical Combat Casualty Care. And there's two levels. There's TCCC AC, which is all combatants, which is ideal for operational personnel, whether it be um, specialist police units, soldiers, um, any tactical teams that are likely to come under fire and need to provide medical care during the operation. And it's at a basic level, so scene assessment, the different phases of TCCC, care under fire, tactical field care, the evacuation phase, how to use tourniquets, how to address chest wounds, etc. And then we've got the TCCC MP, military uh, medical provider, which is for military medics, if you like, or, or anybody that requires the combination of medical care and tactics. 
And that includes a 16-hour syllabus going into environmental emergencies, the phase of TCC, all the way through to ketamine drips, the use of fentanyl, um, surgical airways. Incredible course, absolutely fantastic. The question is, should that be the level that we're looking at for TCC in hostile environments, given that it, it combines, as the NAMT and the COT C say, it combines good medicine with good tactics? That is the question. Uh, we've got other bolt-on courses specifically for the wilderness environment. Working in close protection might take you to the desert in Iraq, North Africa, sub-Saharan Africa. It might take you to the high altitude mountains in Afghanistan. So wilderness medical courses are absolutely fantastic for oil and gas, for close protection, whether it be the 80-hour NASA or NOLS Wilderness First Responder course, the 40-hour Wilderness EMT Upgrade course, or the 20-hour Advanced Wilderness Life Support course, or the Myra. All of these adapt protocols, put things in context, allow you to consider limited resource environments, how you manage the threats with limited resources, but also add more specifics about altitude illness, about bites and stings, about extreme heat about drowning and, and lightning injuries, things that you might not see on, on a standard first responder course. I, I've got a huge list of continuing education courses here, Damo, um, but before I go any further, are there any CPD or continuing education courses in the UK that you want to mention that are useful for CP? Uh, yeah, there is. There's a couple. Um I've only just discovered quite recently um, one of them, and it's by the ATAC group, um, A-T-A-C-C group, ATAC. And they offer a basic and casualty care um, trauma course, and then they offer a rescue trauma and casualty care uh, trauma course. One is two days, the basic's two days, and then the rescue trauma is three days. Uh, and they're a UK-based organisation. So they're... It looks pretty similar to the PHTLS um, that for the American route. Obviously, you can do PHTLS in the UK as well. That, it's not just because that's an American qual doesn't mean to say it's not relevant and you can't do it in the UK. Of course, you can. Um, a lot, but again, a lot of within medical, I'm sure you agree, Chris. A lot of the the studying is self motivated um, and self study. So even if you can't find a course for CPD, do your own. Get the get the textbook. If you can't do the course because you're in Afghan uh, or you're in Iraq or Africa or wherever, um, buy the book, read the book, learn it in your own time. And then at some point, if you can do the course, then fantastic, you can get the qualification. But it's the knowledge that's the key, not the ticket. Yeah. And just jumping in there on PHDLS, it, it is international. Um, and the benefit of PHTLS is most organizations will agree it takes a long time to compile a textbook and by the time it's published it's generally out of date. The benefit of PHTLS is there's a huge committee behind it and they're committed to evidence-based research and that's why PHTLS is republished every four years. It's, it's evidence-based and everything in there is updated continually as the evidence has changed. Uh, but also the NAMT courses are now available in hybrids. Or prior to the pandemic, they were available as hybrids. So you could do 
whereas their 16-hour courses, you could do an eight-hour on online course, and then you could do an eight-hour on-site skills and assessment course to get the full ticket. So you could do half of the study whilst you deployed overseas and then do the assessments and the skills on-site. But uh, most of the NAMT courses now, due to the pandemic, <clears throat> are all being done as webinars and distance learning online. Um, I'm going to teach an all-hazards disaster response course for a, a group in Mexico next week. So most of that will be online through platforms like Zoom. And then if there's a skills portion, if people have got the equipment available, they can demonstrate the skills to the instructor by video conference, or they can come and do a one-to-one on-site demonstration of the skills with all of the relevant things in place like social distancing, masks, cleaning the mannequins, etc. Or they can wait until after the pandemic and see how things pan out. But there's still ways of doing the learning and, and moving through the pandemic with these restrictions. I think the remote training um, is going to be a, a thing of the moving forwards. I think that's going to become commonplace now, where it'll either be online, uh, virtual classroom, wh- whatever the case may be. I think that's, that's and then have skill sets, as you said, face to face, where there's no theory. It's just condensed in. You do skill station, skill station, scenarios, etc., um, yeah. and that that completes the the qualification. Then I think that's going to be commonplace. And that's a really interesting point because we've talked about ACLS being the baseline for recruitment for a lot of tier two healthcare professionals in the Middle East, which is great to have a baseline and I agree with it. But if we don't have the equipment and the drugs, why do we need that qualification? And some of the recruiters are so picky. They say you can only, whilst you've got ACLS, if it's not with the American Heart Association, we don't accept it. There are hundreds of awarding bodies out there now that offer exactly the same course based on exactly the same guidelines and they're updated as the evidence is updated Um, but they're not accepted because they're not on site they're online courses now first of all you can learn the same material online and the future is online and secondly why do we need to emphasize the skills when we don't have the equipment in country to practice the skills so I think there needs to be a little bit of flexibility and a little bit of understanding moving forward. Um, but taking the, the clinical education further, if you're uh, particularly motivated and you, you want to take your clinical education from first responder to healthcare professional, then we've got EMT, emergency medical technician uh, in the rest of the world. You've got ambulance technician um, in the UK, You've got paramedics, and the paramedic field is just enormous. It's really, with UK, Australia, Canada, and America now going down the academic route, so paramedics can participate as healthcare professionals in the evidence-based research process, the the field is just exploding. We've now got community paramedic qualifications, tactical paramedics, critical care paramedics, flight paramedics. The terminology varies depending on the, the geographical region. But there are so many specialities and subspecialities, and it's such an interesting field. You can then further specialize. Uh, if you were to go with the Wilderness Medical Society, for example, you can do the qualification that I've done, the postgrad fellowship of the Academy of Wilderness Medicine, which <clears throat> dives deep. There's the didactic phase, there's online modules, there's conferences, and then you can go away and do it in context. 
I'd done courses with a number of companies in the desert and the mountains, jungles, and actually learn mountain medicine in the mountains, learn about snake bites in the Costa Rican jungle. And you build a portfolio up and, and you can get your fellowship that way. They also, along with other agencies, offer the, the diploma in mountain medicine. And you've got the, um, in the UK, I think, is it the Royal College of Surgeons offers the diploma in remote and offshore medicine? I believe it is, yeah. But then there's, there's universities in the UK, and the list is not exhaustive, but Exeter University, for example, offers a master's degree in extreme medicine, which looks fantastic. You've got Cardiff University offers a master's degree in critical care. There's diplomas, foundation degrees, BSCs in paramedic practice, paramedic science, so step by step, you can move from first responder, tier one medic, tier two medic, and then broaden your speciality. One of the things we are expected to do, and we experience this as close protection medics in the military or close protection officers in the military and on CP teams and oil and, oil and gas, unless you're a specific oil and gas medic, and even then, generally medicine is your secondary role. You're normally a CPO first or a security officer first and a medic second. Or if you're on an oil rig, you're a medic first, but you would be expected to take on a secondary role. And in an environment where supply outstrips demand and there's high competition for jobs, then medics might want to bolt on other calls to try and make themselves more attractive and competitive. So things like IOSH, NIBOSH, NIBOSH oil and gas, dog handling courses, um, experience and knowledge in primary care, hostile environment awareness, training, driving, language skills, communications, instructional qualifications, offshore medic, prolonged field care, uh, point of care ultrasound. All of these little gaps just bolster your portfolio, your skills and knowledge and make you more employable and ultimately give you uh, the opportunity to provide a better service. I don't know if you want to add anything on to that, Dame, with regards to um, continuing education calls or courses. Uh, yeah, I, I do. Thanks. Um, I'm getting asked a lot of questions at the moment um, by CPOs of how do I, what pathways are available in the UK to jump from either to as a progress, skills progression and gain some clinical experience or as a cross-deck pathway from CP to EMS. So once you've got your your FREC level three or equivalent, which is the first responder, um, you've then got FREC four. Now, FREC three and four is the equivalent to an ECA, emergency care assistant, and that is the entry level for a frontline response ambulance in, in the UK. And when I say frontline response ambulance, I'm talking NHS trust, but I'm also talking, and more specifically here, about the private sector, which is getting yeah. bigger and bigger. Now, I, I work um, for Jigsaw Medical, which is a private provider uh, on an NHS contract. Great company. I've got nothing but good things to say about them. I've been yeah, with them for both. three years now. Some great people down there. Yeah, Um so I do, I work on my training provider company and then I also work frontline on the ambulance uh, with Jigsaw and I love it. So as a pathway, once you've got your FREC 3 and your FREC 4 and your blue lights, and, and that's a, a bit of a beast, the, the FREC 3 is five days, FREC 4 is five days. The blue lights, emergency response driving course, that's 
depending on who you do it with, two to four weeks. Uh, mine was four weeks. Once you've got those, you can then apply to any of the private um, providers, well, and the NHS, actually, depending on what their recruitment policy is, um, and you can work frontline ambulance um, as self-employed. So what that means as a CPO, you can go away, work in Africa, Iraq, Afghan, do your CPO role. When you come home on leave, you can then jump on a truck and you can earn money uh, working frontline um, EMS. And secondary to that, and this is where I'm – if I knew this 10 years ago, I would have done this because the amount of times that we had periods in between contracts where you were looking for your next gig, so to speak, if I'd have known this, this is the perfect opportunity. If you've got two months or whatever before your next gig, jump on the ambulance and you've still got a job. You're still earning money in between your close protection tasks um, as well as doing it whilst you're on leave, which is fantastic. So you're guaranteed pretty much that you can earn a wage, whether it be in CP or whether it's going to be in EMS. So progressing from there, you can, there's the associate, the technician that you talked about, ambulance tech, that's now changed to associate ambulance practitioner, AAP, which is the level that I'm currently at uh, and student paramedic. So you can do direct entry <coughs> as an AAP and do that course, which is 10 weeks. It's a bit of a beast. It's 10 weeks classroom based. And then you're, um, you have a portfolio to complete, which is 750 hours. Um, you can also do the FREC 5. Uh, going on from the FREC 4, you can do the FREC 5. Um, that's another, I think that's 10 days. I might be wrong on that one. It could be a little bit longer. I'm not sure. And then you've got a portfolio to do as well. The caveat around the FREC 5 is there's a little bit of uncertainty around that qualification. And I'm not knocking the qualification by any means, um, but some of the trusts don't recognise it because it's a level five and it doesn't fit with their sort of their structure, if you will. Um, some trusts do, but some don't. So just be aware of that, of where you want to work and find out if it's accepted or not. If it's not, you can always go to one that is, but it's just something to be aware of. Um, so you can do FREC 5 and you can work at that tech level or the AAP at that tech level. And then from there, you can go on to obviously the paramedic. So you've got a three year degree or you can do, as it stands at the moment, you can still do the diploma, which is the tech to para conversion. Uh, and that's two years. Now, HCPC are changing that in the near future. It has been postponed because of uh, the, the COVID situation, I believe. Um, so you can still do the two-year diploma and get registration. At some point, and they do keep postponing this, at some point you will have to have a degree to register as a paramedic. So they they are moving down the, the academic um, pathway for sure, um, but at the moment you can still do it as a, as a diploma. So there's a, a pathway within the UK. Um, and obviously, as you um, pointed out, Chris, you can go down the American route and you can go and work uh, and get your clinical hours um, in America or Guatemala or whatever you, you want to do it or Mexico or wherever. Yeah. And any 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 frontline experience, whether it be South Africa with Ronan or yourself in Guatemala or in America or in Mexico, any frontline experience has got to do you good. That patient yeah. contact is absolute key for things to start to become nice and fluid for you. 
developing your decision-making process, understanding what the OBS are telling you, what are the numbers telling you compared to how the patient is presenting. This is These skills can only be developed with patient contact. Um, the self-study is brilliant and has to be done, but the patient contact is the absolute key. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I think the academic route is fantastic because now we've got Australia, UK, Canada, America, we're all going down that route. And it means that paramedics are participating in the evidence-based process and paramedics are changing the protocols and scope of practice based on their own study rather than having somebody do the studies out of context. So it's fantastic to go down the evidence-based route, the academic route. It adds a lot of value within our own community, adds more professionalism. Um, But coming back to Guatemala, we in Guatemala through SOS Medical Services, we offer the full range of NAEMT courses, PHTLS, AMLS, GEMS, TEC, TCCC, but they're the continuing education. We also add the Wilderness First Responder, Wilderness EMT, Advanced Wilderness Life Support. But the baseline clinical calls, we offer the a combined hybrid course, which is a combined emergency medical technician based on the US syllabus with the Wilderness EMT upgrade course approved through the American National Association for Search and Rescue. And that combined course is a hybrid in the sense that you do some distance learning which is great for guys who are deployed. Then you come on site, you do all the lectures, all the skill stations, scenario-based training. And then we do the wilderness in the jungle and on the mountain. We get a herpetologist in the classroom. We do things like extrication with the fire service. So we know how to extricate people from vehicles in remote areas where there is no uh, trustworthy emergency services. Uh, Everything's in context, but the students get to go on the ambulances and build up not only, as you mentioned, their clinical interface, their patient contact develops the currency, the competence, the confidence, so that when they're deployed as a team medic in the middle of nowhere and something happens, they've dealt with that situation before, or they know how to speak to people, or they know how to analyze the baseline vital signs. We do the paramedic on the back of that, so there's a clinical pathway. We do the first responder, the EMT, the paramedic. We're about to launch the flight paramedic, the critical care paramedic, Again, based on the AAOS syllabus, the American Orange Book. Uh, And as part of that, guys will ride along on our ground critical care ambulance. We'll get some time in the ICU or the intensive care unit, and we'll get a helicopter flight too. But we also, aside from the courses, offer healthcare professionals at any level the opportunity to come out and work on our frontline ambulances and to come and join us on medical missions. So on the frontline ambulances, they're likely to see emergencies, but a lot of primary care as well. Get lots of patient assessment, see a lot of primary care from skin diseases to uh, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease to infectious diseases. And then when we get out to the medical missions or the remote area clinics for underserved communities, it's a box of chocolates. You might see Zika, dengue, chikungunya, snake bites, infected spider bites, heat injuries, malnutrition, hyponatremia, hyperglycemia. It's just incredible for any level of practitioner to come and deal with the language issues, the cultural barrier, and to be able to get all of that patient contact in a condensed period. And then that adds to your portfolio. And following on from what you said, recruiters are going to look for baseline qualifications. 
But if they've got hundreds of CVs in front of them with baseline qualifications, who do they select? They're going to select the person with an up-to-date portfolio demonstrating a broad range of experience signed off by medical directors with clinical references proving their cl- their clinical currency competency and that will demonstrate their confidence and their ability to work well within the team so uh, it's essential for healthcare providers as we all know apologies for teaching you to suck eggs but it's something that first responders should do as well albeit they don't have an obligation to register if you've got a portfolio of evidence showing all of the online courses you've done all of the conferences you've attended all of the papers you've read all of the times you've managed patients obviously omitting the patient details or anything that can identify patients, but then do reflective practice exercises as well. And this portfolio will be great for recruitment, but it's also useful for the accreditation of prior learning to get you access onto higher education courses. Can I add something to that? Having done your EMT course in Guatemala uh, a long time ago and experience being on the ambulance in downtown Guatemala that is an experience that I would wholly recommend to anybody fantastic yeah I think in one day we saw a heat stroke hypoglycemia alcohol intoxication and uh, gunshot wounds to the chest it was just amazing Uh, fantastic just even the the medicine aside just a cultural experience of being in that scenario and and the risk level in certain areas as well, albeit managed, um, it's just a fantastic experience for development and wholly, wholly recommended. Oh, thank you. The, the interesting thing is back when you did the course, SOS was just a, a training organisation. Now it's an operational company. We've got a fleet of frontline ambulances, critical care ambulances. Um, we linked in with a helicopter company. We provide air ambulance into facility critical care transport search and rescue we've got fast response bikes fast response cars the training academy so guys can come across whether they want to do a baseline course they want to do a continuing education short course they just want to come and get some clinical experience they just want to help people bolster their portfolio or just want to come and drink our coffee and sit around the station you know and share stories it's it's open there, but it's... Or the room, Chris, or the room. Or the room, yeah, that's a different story. That's for a different don't, podcast. Don't forget the room. <laughs> well, the, the whole idea is that we've seen a gap and we're providing a solution for healthcare professionals because there's. I've worked with incredible medics across the world and you can go on operations, close protection, oil and gas, diplomatic missions, and you might see a cardiac arrest, you might see contact dermatitis, you might see a myocardial infarction, fall from height, chemical burns, amputations from blast wounds. That might be your daily bread and butter, but equally, most of the time, the reality is you can go months without even seeing a patient. Uh, And so we offer the placements here so the guys on their leave period can come and experience the travel, bolster their portfolio, do some clinical updates, practice their skills and and maintain that portfolio, which kind of leads us on to clinical governance. Obviously, healthcare providers listening will know exactly what this is. For the first responders, for the CPOs, for those aspiring to join this 
sphere or to go into a healthcare professional role, a clinical governance system is designed as a continual, continual quality improvement model to provide the best possible care to our patients. They differ slightly, but generally a clinical governance system has got various elements in common. It will be based on risk assessment. It will promote transparency and openness of communication. It will include a research and development element, which paramedics in the academic sphere can contribute towards. It will include clinical audit to ensure compliance with standards from cleaning to protocols to maintenance of qualifications. It will include education and training, clinical effectiveness, which means we need to get feedback from our patient groups as well to ensure that we're attending to their needs, not just the clinical needs, but also the cultural needs. Uh, But essentially, it means that we're going to provide the best possible care and improved patient outcomes. Now, that's that that occurs in the US, the UK, Australia, Canada, Germany, as part of our urban healthcare systems. And a lot of times there is a clinical governance system in place in remote areas. For example, um, our SOS, SOS medical services or SOS services medicals, we provide clinical governance systems for various remote projects, as does international SOS. We shouldn't confuse the two. Um, But that means there is a clinical governance system providing support for either the individual medics, the medical company, or the security company that's providing medical services. We need to remember that a lot of times security companies are flexible and expected to pull rabbits out of hats and expected to provide transport services, site security, close protection, mobile security, tracking, and medical services. But they're not medical companies. So a lot of the security companies these days, particularly in the oil and gas, reach out to a professional medical company to provide that clinical governance umbrella. So you've got a medical director, you've got a recruitment system, a due diligence process, continually checking qualifications, providing training, providing a scope of practice, providing protocols, whether they be online or offline, providing telemedicine reach back, um, so and the right equipment and then implementing some sort of system to get feedback from the medics, from the patient group to make sure that we're being effective, make sure that we're providing an effective and efficient service. And that's becoming more and more at the forefront of close protection operations. Back in 2005, we used to have a bag of bandages and body armor and that was it. And there was really no litigation or liability, but that's completely changed. But there are a lot of cases in close protection where you deploy as an individual close protection operator or you deploy for a security company or because of the skill sets, CPOs and medics are moving into expedition medicine, rescue medicine. And you'll often find yourself alone with no medical director, with no reach back, with no tracking, with urban protocols that are not adapted for the remote environment, with inappropriate equipment, with inappropriate training, and that's only going to end badly for for you, for the company, and particularly for the patient. So medics really need to do their homework and find out, are they covered by a clinical governance system? Uh, and if not, then, then they need to adapt and make themselves, they need to protect themselves, essentially. Whether they go away and do it themselves, 
maintain a portfolio and continuing education, get their own third party medical malpractice and liability insurance, tie in with a doctor to give them reach back who's available to take a call at three o'clock in the morning when the wheel comes off. You, you can do it yourself, but you need to have all your ducks in a row. Um, so that's kind of a bit of a promotion. Um, I'm going to lead into Remote 24, which Remote 24 is a product from SOS Medical Services. And it's essentially a clinical governance service, a subscription-based clinical governance service for individuals or companies where you can subscribe on a yearly basis or the duration of your project for rescue, expedition, wilderness, oil and gas security. And it gives you top cover from a medical director, reach back 24-7 to our medical operations center for a second opinion, for clinical mentoring, for a second, uh, second opinion. It gives you a communications platform. So you've got Wi-Fi communications, satellite-based Wi-Fi communications so that we can track your position. You can send ultrasound images, 12-lead electrocardiograms for second opinion or guidance. We've got adapted protocols. We address the CPD element or the CME element, the continuing education, by providing anybody that subscribes. We provide online continuing education modules in point-of-care ultrasound, advanced cardiac life support, telemedicine, trauma, primary care, snake bites, etc., um, you can sign up to the advanced model, and the advanced model includes a portable diagnostics kit. So instead of having a huge life pack that weighs 25 pounds and costs $30,000, we've got small, lightweight cell phone or smartphone-based 12-lead ECGs, handheld wireless Bluetooth ultrasound transducers that link in with the satellite messenger, link in with the SOS function, uh, and it provides the whole clinical governance system. We do audits, we do training, we support the research and development process just to give you that peace of mind and that support and keep the, clear, uh, the currency and the competency. And as part of that, you can come out to Guatemala and work on the ambulances, the helicopter, in the ICU, the medical missions to keep up your skills in your portfolio. So individual medics, um, you can get in touch with us and we can provide that service and that top cover, the telemedicine, the tracking, the equipment, the training on an individual basis, whether it be a monthly or an annual subscription. And likewise, we do that for companies as well, operating in remote areas. That kind of leads on to the next thing that I want to promote, and that's the RedMed course. The RedMed course, which is linked to the podcast, the book is about to be published it's finally finished, 56 chapters. That was designed for healthcare professionals working in or aspiring to join rescue expedition, the disaster response teams. And with the symbiotic relationship and the overlap, that also includes wilderness and tactical. It includes chapters on specific roles, responsibilities, medical emergency response planning, risk assessment, helicopter safety, bites and stings, altitude illness, expedition medicine, food safety, clothes protection, oil and gas, you name it. It's there to fill the gap. So you, you can buy the manual separately. That would be a good core manual for a lot of these wilderness courses. We're about to launch after the, param uh, the pandemic, the on-site course, which is going to be accredited through various international organizations. More about that on the website. And we're about to launch the online course as well 
which ties in well with the pandemic. So medics deployed can literally work through the whole course module by module at their pace and get the CPD or the CME credit hours for their portfolio whilst also learning specific information for the different roles that cross over. So that will be launched very, very soon. Uh, and that's also free for anybody subscribing to the Remote 24 service. So enough about me uh, and the services. Equipment demo, that's one of the things we haven't really talked about. What equipment do you think that we need in the CP role? So uh, we, we mentioned that the various kind of levels of cover with IFAC, um, grab bags, and vehicle bags but as already stated sometimes that's not realistic but at the very least your kit should be fit for purpose yep. match your level of risk on your risk assessments so whatever you, risks you've identified be able to deal with those on an equipment level and have the competence and the skills to use that equipment and know what it's for um, I've been on projects where you pull out the med bag and it's just not been opened for time millennium <laughs> and uh, nobody knows what the kit's used for, uh, which is not the ideal position to be in when the proverbial hits the fan. So, and also, um, as also previously mentioned, what is the appetite of the company to provide the equipment that is necessary as well. So you've got, you've always got limiting factors within CP, um, whether it be understanding of from the hierarchy or financial limitations or image limitations or whatever the limitations may be, they're always present. Um, That's really good, really good point. Actually, you've got the the financial limitations and the understanding from the security company in terms of medical provision. That's really important. 100%, yeah. And I've had quite a battle um, on a previous project uh, when, when I was management with the hierarchy where we were discussing, one, the level of t training required and what course required, and secondly, the level of kit that's required and how much of that kit. Um, because obviously the, the, that all goes hand in hand. Um, and that was that was many a heated conversation. So the level of understanding from the hierarchy is also important, and, and I think that's improving um, across the board, really, because it, things are becoming more regulated, and with regulation and governance uh, comes understanding as well, because once you add that element of liability and risk, people start to take note and start listening to the conversation then um, and make, make things happen, which is great. But as far as what kit to carry, um, I think we've I think that generally covers it yeah, suitable yeah. for the risk that you face to the skill set and um, in your CABCDEs. That, that's pretty much, without going into each individual item, um, I think that's a, a, a good overview. Excellent. Yeah, I'd say an individual first aid kit strapped to the body. I had a, an ambulance and a clinic in Kurdistan and I got very comfortable. I had Facebook, I had a coffee machine, I had air conditioning. And then three days later, I was lying in a trench with 3,000 ISIS fighters coming towards us. And I literally had what was attached to my body. I was expected to do the same job with what was in the pouch. And it's the same if you roll over a vehicle or there's a, a roadside bomb goes off and everything gets destroyed in your, in your rucksack. You've got 
what is attached to your body. The same as if there's a an emergency in a helicopter and you you have a, a mechanical failure and need to land or you have a, an accident, you're going to move away from that airframe very, very quickly to a, a place of high risk, to a place of lower risk. And if it bursts into flames, you've only got what's in your vest, which needs to be your survival kit, your communications kit, your personal medical equipment. Um, everything else is a luxury, really. So... And also, the, we've—I mean—we had this conversation prior to the to the podcast. Unfortunately, because it turned out to be a really good conversation, but <laughs> we we discussed about, say, a, a London CP team, for example. Um, and I hope I'm not jumping the gun on, on this, but they've got the limitations of they're they're in suits or they're in whatever the dress code is for the day, um, etc. So. The argument that I know guys are listening to this and think, well, we can't we can't have IFAX and what have you. So I get that 100%. But at least have a grab bag and a team bag in, in the vehicle that is available if you are close to the vehicle, at, at the very least, because the world is a hostile environment at the moment. Um, and that, that line of hostile environment, permissive environment, has, has been blurred recently. Yeah. You've got yep. the Manchester bombings. You've got people drive, driving vehicles into crowds. You've got stabbings on a daily basis in, in London, um, albeit not terrorist attacks, but what, whatever the case may be, the potential for trauma um, in a city is that that line of hostile permissive is no longer quite as clear as it used to be. So you need to have some equipment to hand available to deal with that situation and yes the emergency services will be there within minutes but you may not have eight minute response time to deal with the casualty um, yeah. that casualty could have bled out by that point so it's just it's a consideration and i do appreciate the limitations that guys are working under um with carrying the kit on the person etc but even if it's a shoulder bag a civilian shoulder bag that just looks absolutely normal and in place in yeah. any town or city that's fine. If it's put med kit in that, that's cool. Yeah, could be a laptop bag, couldn't it? A camera bag. Um, 100%. It's we did this exercise on your wilderness EMT course years ago. You did the EMT course first and got accustomed to the ambulance equipment. And then I said, right, we're going up a mountain tomorrow. We're going to a high altitude mountain. These are the risks. High altitude, rockfall, burns, snake bites, humidity. What do you want to take? And you filled the whiteboard with everything that was in the ambulance. I said, okay, <laughs> so let's cut it in half and cut it in half again, making things multi-purpose, lightweight, flexible to be able to do the same job with less kit. Uh, yeah. And that's the same in the CP role. All right, you're wearing a suit and you can't carry a big tactical bag, but maybe you can put the chest seal in your back pocket. You can put a tourniquet on your belt. You can put a trauma dressing in your suit pocket. You can put some plasters um, in your right-hand pocket and you can distribute things. You don't need to carry everything. Carry everything you might need in line with your risk assessment because Murphy's Law will strike. If you leave it in the car, then the car will have to leave. It'll get moved on by the police or there'll be an earthquake and the, the steps will collapse or there'll be a fire and the door's locked. You can guarantee when you need it, it won't be available or it's going to take you 10 minutes to get down to the car park and get back up, and that's 15 minutes the client hasn't got. Um, and in Guatemala, for example, I, I ran a course, uh, it was a course on crush injuries for disaster, 
the second leading cause of, of death post-earthquake. And we were looking at everything from ultrasound to fluid resuscitation. And everybody in the workshop was either a paramedic or a rescue tech and urban search and rescue tech, really keen. I said, who's got a first aid kit? Everybody. Yeah, I've got one. Where is it? Our oh, mine's at home. Mine's in the car. Mine's in the office. So what happens if something happens now? What happens if there's an incident when you're walking from here to your car? If it's not attached to your body, without the equipment, a paramedic is just a first responder. Uh, and in Guatemala, we really promote at national level that everybody has a bug out bag or a 72 hour bag. Initially for things like earthquakes and volcanic eruptions. But these days, because the number of COVID-19 cases are sprouting up and there's outbreaks all over the place, you can't guarantee that when you leave your office, you can get back home. The That's entire neighborhood might be cordoned off and they say, I'm sorry, you can't come in as an outbreak. So you've got what's attached to your body. And if you've got a sleeping bag and a solar charge or in a book and some money, and then you can survive, thrive and operate and be comfortable. Uh, and that's the same as medical kit, I think. Yeah, agreed. That's a great point about places getting locked down and not being able to move in or out with the current climate. That's, that's fantastic. Uh, and I had a similar situation in Kurdistan we had uh, a great clinic. There was myself as a, the emergency paramedic. We had a doctor on the rig for primary care and uh, great facilities. It was one of the few facilities I'd worked on where we had a, a life pack with a, a cardiac monitor and all the drugs we didn't want for anything. But then we had a very, very sick patient who was um, hypertensive. We managed him on site for two hours. I made the decision to drive him to hospital and halfway there, a device had gone off in Erbil, a bomb had gone off in Erbil, and the police had locked down the route. Pure coincidence, the device or the delivery vehicle used to deliver that device was an ambulance. So the terrorists had stolen an ambulance, packed it full of explosives, and therefore us trying to move from an oil field to the capital, there was no way we were getting there in an ambulance. So we had to wait at the police checkpoint, and in the end, we had to turn around, go back to the oil rig and do prolonged field care, in a limited resource environment. Um, so you, you just can't guarantee that all the links in the chain of your medical emergency response plan are going to function. And two weeks later, we had a, an amputation on the oil rig, transport the guy to hospital in line with the medical emergency response plan, but it was Ramadan and the hospital was closed. So we went to the secondary hospital that we had wrecked and it was closed. We went to the third hospital, which fortunately was open, but the doctors were on the floor asleep. So point is you've got to have a plan a b and c for everything in remote areas you can't guarantee anything fantastic well i don't know if you've got anything else that you want to add on the cp before we go into uh, a polis is there anything you want to summarize or add to the discussion uh, no i think we've covered uh, everything chris to be fair um i mean this is this is a ten-year conversation condensed into how long we've been <laughs> we've been talking. So, yeah. um, I think we've done pretty well, really. <laughs> yeah, I think we could probably talk all week. Add some coffee and rum, and you'd probably extend that even further. <laughs> Agreed. Agreed. So, um, you're now the CEO, founder of Apollos Medical. I what, am. What is Apollos? Where are you? What are you doing? What services and products are you offering, and how can people find you? Well, first of all, you can find me um, on LinkedIn, Damien Rawcliffe. Um, you can find me on my website, Apollos Medical. 
And I set up Apollos Medical last year, and we teach the full suite of your uh, normal run-of-the-mill first aid at work, um, tailored for the whatever industry we're dealing with, whether it's low-risk, high-risk uh, industrial sites, etc. Um, we also offer a zero responder um, package. That's a three-hour workshop. I am looking at putting this online um, as well, but we haven't achieved that yet. The zero responder came out of the Manchester bombing um, with the Curse Lake report that the people at the epicentre of a mass casualty incident like the Manchester Arena bombing, it takes the emergency services and the report just um, states how effective and how well the emergency services responded. So this isn't, uh, this isn't negative in any way towards them, but it takes time to work your way into the epicentre um, of the incident. So people had to self-aid and self-treat. Uh, with very limited resources, very limited training. So there's, that's the zero responder package where you are the zero responder waiting for the first responders, emergency responders to arrive. That's a bit um, like the, um, the US Stop the Bleed course, an initiative that came out of the Hartford consensus, just teaches your average everyday civilian on the street to use a tourniquet, direct pressure, hemostatic gauze, and it really is saving lives. Absolutely. Yeah, it is. Um, and then I've got the uh, first responder for the close protection guys. Um, and that's, that's obviously with my background uh, and experience, this is my, my absolute passion. Um, then moving on, we've got the, the red med responder with your good self. And we've also got the first aid for mental health um, awareness and supervising. Now, what I am looking to do in the future is create a definitive pathway into um, EMS for CP guys. That's not online yet. That's not finished yet, but that's something that I am working on for the future. Superb. Absolutely fantastic. Well, there's a link between our two companies anyway, apart from the friendship and the experience. Your first responders can come across to Guatemala and, and practice. Absolutely. They can step up and do the international EMT or the wilderness first responder or wilderness EMT. Um, do the, the clinics, get the, the exposure and the portfolio. Uh, and I know we're going to be working together both uh, as we provide the clinical governance umbrella and the operational systems, you're going to be working as our partner to deliver the training for, for these environments. So I'm looking forward to the future. It's going to be great. Another 10 years, Chris, hopefully. <laughs> if we last that long. <laughs> <laughs> Questionable. Yeah, yeah. So what's your website? It's apollosmedical.co.uk. Excellent. Facebook? Uh, Apollos Medical. LinkedIn? Apollos Medical. That's I've kept it really good. simple, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and LinkedIn, Damien Rawcliffe as well, if you'll find me on there as well, on my personal profile. Superb, mate. That's superb. Thank you. Well, uh, as you know, we're... Uh, Rescue Expedition Disaster Medicine, uh, supported by SOS Medical Services. So you can find us for the Remote 24 or the training on www.sosmedicalservices.org. Um, email at info at sosmedicalservices.org. On Instagram and Facebook, it's Rescue Expedition and Disaster Medicine. Or you can go on www.redmed.education. Um, where you'll find all of our remote area, desert, mountain, jungle, and red med courses listed, most of which are certified through the Wilderness Medical Society for faculty and fellowship credits. 
you can find obviously if you found this podcast you know it's on Spreaker or iTunes uh, and then as far as continuing education goes we offer the full range of EMT paramedic flight paramedic courses and the continuing education PHDLS AMLS wilderness first responder GEMS all hazards disaster response and then the flagship RedMed which will be launching soon to to fill multiple gaps uh, and give CPD credits. If you're interested in the coffee, apart from the fact it's fantastic gourmet Guatemalan coffee, every penny of it goes back into the community. We've trained over 800 people in CPR and bleeding control in Guatemala to help promote public involvement in first response, and we use it to save lives in remote communities. The last medical mission we did on the back of the coffee sales, we saw over 400 patients and at the end of the day, as we were packing up, a couple of parents brought in this 11-year-old boy who was unconscious, hypotensive, bleeding from every orifice, and he was suffering from hemorrhagic dengue fever. The parents didn't recognize it. They didn't have the money to take him to hospital. They wouldn't have had the money to buy the medications. And our team was able to intervene, stabilize him, save his life, and transport him to hospital, uh, thanks to you guys for buying the coffee. I understand that coffee's hard to come by because we can't ship it out of Guatemala. Normally, people buy it here when they're on courses or medical missions. But we are, as of next month, launching the sale of our coffee from the UK. So it'll be far more accessible. So you can follow us on uh, Rescue Expedition Disaster Facebook and uh, and hook us up on there. Cheers, Damo. It's been an absolute pleasure, mate. Some gems, nuggets and pearls have come out there. Thanks for your experience and your time, mate. Brilliant. Likewise, Chris, it's been an absolute pleasure and I hope um, the listeners gain value from it. Yeah, I'm sure they will, mate. And we'll follow up with any questions and maybe do a, a second podcast afterwards if there's anything that comes from it. Yeah, fantastic. I'm in. Great stuff. And thanks to everybody that's working on the front line. Thanks for your efforts working with COVID-19. Uh, really appreciate it. Stay safe and we'll speak to you soon. Thank you. Bye-bye. Take care, mate. Bye-bye.